0: bring in a kind of a three-point Church of Christ lesson uh, that, you know, we usually do and uh, just uh, help me stay on track and uh, we'll just finish up with a quick three points on, you know, what we should be doing uh, in times of suffering. So uh, we'll start out reading the first three verses in, in the first chapter of Job. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright and one who feared God and shunned evil. And seven sons and three daughters were born to him. Also, his possessions were 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 female donkeys, and a very large household, so that this man was the greatest of all the people of the east. So immediately, the account of Job starts off of the family of Job, talking about, you know, how big of a family he actually has. Could you imagine trying to raise seven sons and three daughters, especially the daughters part? I'm just messing, but... Um, That's a huge family. And imagine all the possessions as well, the livestock. Um, You know, there's just so much that we see here that he's raising. And uh, so so Job obviously has a lot going on. And as we continue in verses 6 through 12, we see uh, Satan attacking Job's character. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. And Satan also came among them. And the Lord said to Satan, From where do you come? So Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth, and from walking back and forth on it. Then the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth? A blameless and upright man, one who fears God and shuns evil. So Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not made a hedge around him, around his household, and around all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. But now stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your power. Only do not lay a hand on his person. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. Imagine how scary this would be if you knew that Satan was coming after you. You knew that he was coming after you and everything that you had. At this point, uh, Satan is talking to God. And gives him a challenge, and, and God accepts the challenge to allow Satan to test Job to see, you know, how faithful he really is. And uh, you know, a lot of times, even and and this seems, this seems scary here, but a lot of times this is what we go through. Sometimes we realize it, and sometimes we don't. The times that we don't, we don't realize it until we've actually accepted the sin and are tempted by it and fall into temptation, and that's the scary part. Um, being able to know that he's about to be tested. Um, you know, is a scary part. And as we go into verses 13 through 22, we see where Satan actually attacks Job and uh, his property and children. We'll read there. Now there was a day when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their older brother's house. And And a messenger came to Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them when the Sabians raided them and took them away. Indeed, they have killed the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another also came and said, The fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them. And I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another also came and said, The Chaldeans formed three bands, raided the camels and took them away. Yes, and killed the servants with the edge of the sword. And I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another also came and said, Your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their older brother's house. And suddenly a great wind came from, a, from the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house. And it fell on the young people, and they are dead. And I alone have escaped to tell you. Then Job arose, tore his robe, and shaved his head. And he fell to the ground and worshipped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return there. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And in all this, Job did not sin, nor charge God with the wrong. The first words that come to my mind when I read this passage is, wow, what an incredible account right here. Um, You know, a man is just sitting here, you know, just uh, a regular day, and all of a sudden, you know, these people come to him and tell him, you know, all these possessions that he's worked so hard bringing up, uh, you know, his livestock has suddenly been burned up or or taken away by certain groups of people. Um, And then also hearing about his children. His children are gone now in just an instant, just like that. How would you feel if you got a phone call one day uh, from your child's school, um, during maybe, maybe a bad storm or something, to hear that your child had been killed by a tornado or, or some type of severe storm that goes through the area? How would you feel if you learned, you know, just in that instant? Or maybe your spouse or something was killed in a car accident? How would you feel? What would be running through your mind? Would you maybe be wanting to know, you know, you know who is responsible uh, for something that happened to, to my family or, uh, or my children or, or my spouse? You know, why me, God? Why would you do this to me when I'm trying to live right every day? I'm trying to serve people and love one another like I should, like, like Christ tells me to. Why me? Why would you do this to me? Um, and we see that uh, Job has lost all this, but still we see in verse 22 that Job did not charge God with sin, I mean with wrong, and he did not sin. And uh, just to be able to see that, uh, you know, in these first couple of chapters that Job uh, does not sin or charge God with wrong is amazing to me. Because if we were in that situation, what would we be doing, you know? Would we really uh, be able to do this, or, or would we, would we be, would be asking, you know, God, why, why, would, why would you do this to me? Um, there's a lot of thoughts that would be running through our head, I'm sure, uh, let's pick up in chapter 2, uh, re- read uh, verses 1 through 10. Again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. And Satan came also among them to present himself before the Lord. And the Lord said to Satan, from where do you come? So Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth, and from walking back and forth on it. Then the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man? One who fears God and shuns evil, and still he holds fast to his integrity, although you incited me against him to destroy him without cause. So Satan answered the Lord and said, Skin for skin. Yes, all that a man has he will give for his life. But stretch out your hand now and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will surely curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, he is in your hand, but spare his life. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and struck Job with painful boils from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. And he took for himself a posture with which to scrape himself while he sat in the midst of his ashes. Then his wife said to him, Do you still hold fast to your integrity? Curse God and die. But he said to her, You speak as one of the foolish women speaks. Shall we indeed accept good from God? And shall we not accept adversity? And all this Job did not sin with his lips. Um, Such another incredible passage. Um, Satan has gone to the very point of touching his body with these painful boils from his feet to the top of his head, and yet he still does not sin with his lips. Um, he goes all the way from losing his, losing his children, losing his livestock, having them uh, either taken away or burnt up, um, and then having his health attacked, but yet he still remains faithful here in these first couple chapters. Um, what an incredible... Passage, first uh, couple of passages we read here, and, uh, and you know, we should be like him in these first couple of chapters uh, when it comes to times of suffering. Uh, now I want to kind of close with uh, my final three points of uh, what we should do and uh, things that should be going on when we're dealing with times of suffering. If you would turn with me to Second Timothy chapter three, verse 12. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12. Yes, in all who desire to live godly in Christ, Jesus will suffer persecution. Will suffer. Yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ, Jesus will suffer persecution. As we can see here, that um, you know, as long as we're wanting to live godly lives, we're going to suffer persecution. We're going to go through times of trials and temptations. Um, from this verse, we can see that you know, sometimes the righteous will suffer just because we are righteous. Living the Christian life is not easy. Uh, sometimes it's, it seems like it's even more tough uh, than living the worldly life. Um, and so Second uh, Timothy chapter three verse 12 uh, really kind of helps me out and uh, hopefully can help us out to know that, you know, um, we're going to go through times of trials, and things are going to be tough. And if you think that everything's going to be perfect all the time, friends. That's so wrong because it's not, it's not going to be that way. And uh, many of us, I mean all of us, have, have experienced that. And we should continue that uh, in our minds. All right, our next passage uh, will be uh, Job 6.14. I'll just kind of flip through a few passages. Uh, this is talking about uh, those who are suffering need comfort, uh, not criticism. Job 6.14. To him who is afflicted, kindness should be shown to his friend. Proverbs 17 17. A friend loves at all times, and a brother is born for adversity. Romans 12 15. Rejoice with those who rejoice, and weep with those who weep. And also, my last point is regardless of how much suffering that we're going to endure, God is to always be praised. Job chapter 1, verse 21. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall return there. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Job chapter 40, verses 8 through 14. Would you indeed annul my judgment? Would you condemn me that you may be justified? Have you an arm like God? Or can you thunder with a voice like his? Then adorn yourself with majesty and splendor and array yourself with glory and beauty. Disperse the rage of your wrath. Look on everyone who is proud and humble him. Look on everyone who is proud and bring him low. Tread down the wicked in their place. Hide them in the dust together. Bind their faces in hidden darkness. Then I will also confess to you that your own right hand can save you. God's ways is His ways, and uh, we shouldn't mess around with those. Everything that God does is for a reason. Uh, We have no part in that. Everything that He brings before us is for a reason. And, uh, you know, no matter what kind of suffering we go through, we must realize that it's happening for a reason. And uh, God never gives us anything uh, more than we can handle, and He provides a way for of escape for us, uh, you know, in, in those times and temptations. And uh, in my last passage I want to look at, last verse, is Isaiah 55, uh, verses 8 through 9, as Timothy read for us a few minutes ago. Isaiah 55, 8 and 9. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. God is all-powerful, and he has all the power. We have brothers and sisters here uh, this morning, that are always willing to help each other out, who we'll always love one another and willing to serve one another, and I hope that we always keep that attitude up um, to to love one another. And uh, if there's one thing that you can take uh, from my message this morning, is that um, that you're not alone. Our brothers and sisters here this morning are probably going through a lot of the same things that we are, and we shouldn't be afraid to confess our sins. Um, in Galatians chapter 6, verse 2, we're told to bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the life of Christ. So fulfill the will of Christ. I believe that's right. Um, and, uh, you know, our brothers and sisters are here for us. Hopefully they're dependable and that they, they are here for us always. Um, so uh, always turn to them and, and know that Jesus loves you always. Thank you.
1: Good morning. Uh, if you're visiting with, with us this morning, we're so glad you're here, we're so glad that you've come um, to worship with us at the Mount Juliet Church of Christ. I'm so thankful for this church. I'm so thankful for the encouragement that you have always been to me since I was in about fourth grade. Uh, the things I've learned here, the things that I can take with me in my future are incredible. It's, it's a blessing that, that not many kids, people get the opportunity to have, and I'm so thankful for it. Of course, I'm thankful for the scholarships that you've blessed all of us with. It it helps so much. And I feel like I have so many parents and grandparents in the audience and, of course, brothers and sisters. I'm just so thankful for all of you. The desert is where we find and where we meet God. Many of you are suffering from an, an unquenchable thirst, you feel like. One that can't be satisfied. You see, Job was in the desert... Many commentaries say when it says in Job chapter 2 verse 11, he was, you know, he was in the ashes, he was sitting in an ash heap. Many commentaries say that he was actually outside the city where, the, where all the townspeople burned their trash, where all the lepers and all the outcasts of society lived. So Job was probably outside the city. As Clay said, as we've already studied, he lost virtually everything he felt like. He lost his wife. He lost his kids. He lost all of his livestock, all of his possessions. Job felt like he had lost everything. He had pottery and he was scraping the boils and, and busting them so that it could let off some release from his skin. He was going through major grief and major pain. Job chapter 30, verse 30, Job says, My skin is black and it is falling off of my body. He says, My insides are in turmoil. Job, he didn't just have boils on his skin. He was sick. He had some sort of disease that was literally killing him. It was taking the flesh off of his bones. Job was no doubt in just severe agony. He had lost everything. His physical health was declining quickly. And he was just sitting there. a man in complete confusion, sickness to despair, the most respected man in the land of the East, the richest man in the East, one that people always looked up to. You know, Job. Oh, Job, probably the most popular guy around. He was now in the ash heaps. He was with the lepers. He was an outcast. Job chapter 30, we read verses 1 and 2. Job realizes, or he thinks, that he is forsaken by God. He thinks that God has left him completely. He thinks the things that God did give him and bless him so richly with, he has taken them away. And he can't figure out why. He says in verse 30, But now they laugh at me, men who are younger than I. Remember how much age had an effect on people in that culture. If you're older, you're highly revered. And he says, younger men, they laugh at me. Those men, even whose fathers I have disdained, to sit with my, the dogs of my flock. He's saying not only their children, but the men that, that are just kind of losers, men that, that are criminals that I wouldn't even put to watch my flock and with my dogs. He's saying all these people are laughing at me. I'm no longer respected man. I no longer have reputation. I'm the guy that did something, so God took away Everything I have. He says in verse 29, I'm a brother of jackals and a companion of ostriches. A brother of, you know, wild dogs. A companion of ostriches. Animals that live in desolate places. Animals that, that live in the desert. Job says, I have nobody. I have a God that has completely left me. He's taken everything I have, I had. All my friends have left me. I have no children. I have no wife. And for the most part, he felt like he had no friends. I am in a desolate place. I'm in the desert. So often we're suffering, we are in the desert. And we feel like nobody can understand what we're going through. We're going through grief. We're going through pain and misery. And we feel like nobody knows what I'm going through. Nobody can feel what I'm feeling. Nobody can help me. If you're like me, when you're going through times like that, you even push people away because you don't want help. I shouldn't be going through this. I'm stronger than this. I don't need your help. Job was like that, I feel like. He didn't need anybody. He didn't want anybody's help. He was completely desolate. And he couldn't find God in his desolation. Job found it impossible to find God in desolation. You look at the children of Israel. They were coming out of Egypt. And the first place they meet God is where? In the desert. Then you look at uh, the, like, people like David and Joseph and, and Moses and Abraham, men that spent most of their life in the desert. God has always been a person that puts people in the desert. And it, there's no, it's, no, it's not of little uh, significance that God, The overlying theme of the Bible is that God is water. God has always provided for his people in the desert. So the question is, when we're going through suffering, are we going to find God in the desert? Because he is there waiting. He wants us to find him, but are you going to search for God in your problems? So before God find, before Job finds God in the desert, first he finds his friends. You know, the famous three companions that go up and find Job, their friend, their name, um, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. And in chapter 2, verse 11, um, these men were older than Job. They were respected. Um, one was from a place that was renowned for its wisdom. So they were probably wise men. And with Job's connections of how rich he used to be, they were probably well-off, probably well-to-do people that were highly respected. So I'll picture it this way. And I'm going to make some assumptions based off of Scripture. But these men, Job was probably, the Scripture doesn't tell us exactly, but he was probably still outside the city. He was still in severe pain. He was still in severe agony. And he might have even still been sitting on ash heaps. And these men probably had to go outside the city, and they were all from different lands. It says in verse 11 that they made an appointment. They set a time together to go and find Job, their friend, and see how he was doing. So they go, they meet together, they go to the land of Uz, and they find, they're looking around for Job. And they have to look because he's probably not at his home. That used to be his home. And uh, he's probably outside the gates. And they have, they have to ask around, Has to, have to, you know, cover their faces as they're asking lepers or criminals And they finally, somebody finally points out Job. You know, I like movies, and I like making movies, so I see the camera, you know, pan over, and there's Job. And they're like, what? Because the Scriptures tells us that he's unrecognizable. His flesh is falling off of his body. This man has gone through probably, hopefully, more of us will ever go through in our life. And the Scriptures say that these men, you know, in, in... Ancient tradition, they tore their clothes. They put dirt all over their bodies and they grieved. I can't imagine what Job must have looked like and what they, how awkward it must have been as they sat down with Job in the ash heap and how different he must have looked. They didn't even recognize him. They were just sitting with this mess of human flesh. And the Scriptures tells us that they sat in silence. They sat with their friend in silence, the best thing that they could have done for a day and a night. Just complete silence. Nothing was said. And then six more days and nights. Nothing was said. I imagine the only words or utterances that there were was Job's groaning from his pain and from his agony. And then Job says in Job chapter 2, he finally opens his mouth, or 3, I mean, sorry. Job chapter 3, he opens his mouth and cursed the day of his birth in verse 1. And Job said, let the day perish on which I was born. And the night that said, a man is conceived, let that day be darkness. May God above not seek it, nor light shine upon it. The first thing that Job tells his friends that were so good, that were so awesome to come and see their friend in agony, the first thing Job says is, I wish I would have never been born. I wish I would have never come out of the womb. I wish the day that that was my birth was now darkness and God didn't even realize that it was there. What would you have said to Job? Give him a pep talk. Come on, Job. It's not that bad. You're a great guy. You're going to get through this. I think so often we forget that people who are in suffering or severe grief, sometimes we say things that we don't even, we say things that we completely mean at the time, but when you think about it later on, you're like, why in the world did I do that? I think we encounter, we have to encounter people like that every day, but we just probably don't realize it. People that just get angry instantly, or people that are just numb to everything, they're just days off. People that do things that are so irrational, but the time is so rational to them because they are in severe pain and grief. Do you think Job's friends realized this? Do you think Job's friends realized that he was in the desert of suffering? That he had an unquenchable thirst that he couldn't get rid of? Do you think they realized this? No, not at all. Her first friend spoke up in Job chapter 3, uh, 4, verse 7. Remember Eliphaz, and uh, preface this. These men, in this, also in this whole culture, they thought that Job did something to deserve. Like, Job made God angry so that God was punishing him for what they did. So that was their whole reason that they were talking to Job right now. Eliphaz says, remember who was it... Who?" Who that was innocent ever perished? Or where were the upright cut off? As I have seen, those who plow iniquity and sow trouble, they will reap the same. By the breath of God they perish, and by the blast of his anger they are consumed. So Eliphaz says, listen, Job, I don't know what you did. I don't know what you did to deserve all of this, your skin falling off, your your wife leaving you, your children dying. I don't know what you did, but what you sow is what you reap. You reap what you sow. So you did something. What great encouragement. And then uh, Bildad answers in Job chapter 8, verse 4. He even talks about his children, a man that had just lost his children. He says in verse 4, If your children have sinned against him, he has delivered them into the hand of their transgression. Bildad says the <laughs> same thing. Your children sinned, so they are in the hand of their transgressor now too. You deserve this, Job. Your children deserve this. And then even Zophar speaks up, the youngest of the bunch, in chapter ten, verse the end of verse six, he says, "For it is manifold in understanding. Know then that God exacts of you less than your guilt deserves." Zophar says, "God didn't even give you enough punishment. You deserve more punishment than what you're receiving." And they go on for 34 chapters. They go on for 34 chapters, back and forth, just bantering. And it was actually, you can tell they're all educated men because from that time period, it was all like sermons, back and forth to each other. It was, it was well thought out. It was well put together. They're not just having a normal conversation like us, but they're just like preaching to each other in conversation back and forth. And so they go back and forth for 34 chapters, and Job is, Job is telling these guys, "'Listen, I'm blameless. I'm upright.'" I'm a righteous man. There's nothing that I did to deserve the punishment that I'm getting, getting. But at the same time, Job had no idea. He had no idea why he was receiving this punishment. If we look... Oh boy, I've lost my place. Hold on. I'm not like the other guys. I need notes. I'm not that smart. Um. Um, Job chapter 13, I was right at it, Job chapter 13, verse 17, Job just wants to question God. He wants to ask God, why am I going through all this suffering? Keep listening, Job is talking to God, keep listening to my words and let my declaration be in your ears. Behold, I have prepared my case. It's like a trial to Job. He wants to go to court with God almost. I know that I shall be in the right. Who is there who will contend with me? For then I will be silent and die. Only grant me two things. Then I will not hide my, myself from your face. Withdraw your hand from me and let not dread of you terrify me. So Job wants to bring God to court, but of course, you know, he's scared. And there's also that problem that God is invisible. Okay? So, Timothy so says in verse 22, Then call, God is, Job is pleading with God, Then call and I will answer. Or let me speak and you reply to me. Job says, All I want to do is ask God, Why? I want to ask God, and remember, Job feels like this is injustice to him. His suffering is not justified. So Job wants to ask God, why are you letting these things happen to me? How is God going to reply? How is an almighty creator going to reply to his own creation that is questioning him about his suffering? Let's turn over to Job chapter 38. Job chapter 38. The water in the desert. God himself answered Job out of the whirlwind in verse 1 and says, so God's in a whirlwind. Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. I will question you and you make it known to me. So Job says, God says, Job, you want to question me? You say these things that don't even make sense. You're not even asking the right questions. You are darkening counsel. You have no knowledge of what is going on. So God says, you want to question me? He says, gird your loins. Dress like a man. He says, man up. Because I'm fixing to ask you 77 questions out of three chapters in the book of Job. God doesn't directly reply to Job's asking of why his suffering is not justified. He doesn't directly answer that. But what he does do... Well, we're going to find out what he does do. But for 77 uh, chap- verse, uh, questions, he keeps questioning Job about zoology, about cosmology, about meteorology, about his creation. So, so why did he do that? Why did God continue to ask Job question after question? Well, I think we can learn in, in th- chapter 38, verse 25, some of the first questions that, that God asked Job. Job is in the desert of suffering. Who is a cleft, a channel for the torrents of rain, and a way for the thunderbolt? To bring rain on a land where no man is, on the desert in which there is no man, to satisfy the waste and desolate land, and to make the ground sprout with grass. God says, how do I do this? God says, I bring rain, I, I bring vegetation to a desert, to a place where there is no man. There may be only be like wild dogs or ostriches. A place in the desert. God says, I am the God of the desert. He says, Job, when you feel alone, when you feel like everybody else has left you, when your friends are practically persecuting you for for not doing anything, I'm there. I'm the God of the desert. When you even feel like God, when you even feel like me, God, myself, has forsaken you, Job, I am even there with you still. I am the God of the desert. He says he brings rain himself. God is the rain of the desert. And I think that's the overlying theme of Job. You know, a lot of our problems and questions about suffering aren't really answered in this book. They're really not, honestly. What God does show in the book of Job is that he is there for us in those sufferings. Like Clay said, he doesn't say, I'm going to take your suffering away. He actually says "In 1 Peter, you're going to suffer. So what are you going to suffer for, good or bad? God says, you're going to suffer, but I am the God of the desert of suffering. God says, I will be there for you. So what does Job say in verse 42? Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things, that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Remember, that's what God asked Job at the beginning. Therefore, I have uttered what I do not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Job says, okay, I understand. I'm not going to understand. Verse 4, hear and I will speak. I will question you and you make it known to me. I heard of you by the hearing of my ear, but now my eyes see you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. God finally saw God. Job finally saw God in the whirlwind. Job finally saw God in his suffering. Are you seeing God in your suffering? When you you are at the depths of despair, are you leaning on God? The Bible tells us that it is a time that we grow closer to God, that we lean on his everlasting arm. Are we doing that? You know, we, we all know of kids that. You know, they're sport rotten when they were little. They got everything they wanted. They were never told no. They were never told they couldn't do this or go there. And they get older. And they're still sport rotten. And they're weak. And they can't handle things. And they cry a lot. And they lie a lot. Why? Because they were never told no. In a sense, they were never put through suffering. They always got exactly what they wanted. We grow stronger as a person, as an individual and even in our spirituality, when we go through suffering, the Bible teaches that. First Peter, First Peter, chapter four. We'll turn there real quick. First Peter, chapter four. First Peter, chapter four. What does what does Peter have to say about suffering? He says in verse one, "Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, we all know Christ suffered not only, uh, you know." Physically on the cross and all those things. but so it even went through temptations like we did. Through suffering and warring the flesh and, our, and the spirit. So Christ suffered in the flesh. Therefore, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. What a beautiful picture. If you want to cease from sin. it's not saying literally you're not going to sin. But you're going to be blameless in a sense. You're not going to sin all the time. You're not going to be a slave to sin and bondage of sin. He says, if you want to cease from sin, you arm yourself. You literally take up the weapon. Well, what kind of Christian weapon are we going to take up? What is God going to give us? He says, look to Jesus who suffered. Have that same mindset as Christ who suffered in the flesh. So if you want to not be a bondage to sin, if you want to cease from sin know that you are going to suffer just like Christ did when he was on this earth. Know that you are going to suffer. If you have the mindset of suffering, and have the mindset of knowing that that God is there with us in the desert, it will be a lot easier to get through that suffering. Um, God didn't answer all of our questions about suffering in this book. But obviously what he did want us to see is that when we are in the desert... He is there with us. He is there with us with a big cup of water. God's people have always been in the desert. You think back, you think of David, and you think of Joseph and Abraham and Job, people that spent a lot of their lives in the desert. David says in Psalm 63, "O oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My body longs for you in a dry and weary land." Where there is no water. We all need to share these same words that deal with suffering. You know, Jesus is the answer for all of us. If we feel like we are in the mountains or in the valleys, we feel like we are in the desert, in the desert of suffering, or if we're in the city with no worries right now, our answer in either situation is Christ. Jesus says in Matthew 11, Come to me, all you who are weak and heavy laden, and all of you who are suffering on this earth, I will give you rest. You know, yoke up with me. Literally, take your burden, and I will help you. Yoke up with me, and we'll carry it. My burden is light. Jesus says, when you go through suffering, find me. Know me. My burden is light. Many of us here are thirsting with a thirst that seems unquenchable, with a thirst that almost seems can't be satisfied. God wants to meet you in the desert. God wants to quench your thirst. This morning, are you ready for God to quench your thirst? Maybe you haven't started your walk with God. Maybe you haven't been baptized in the water. Receive the Spirit, wash away your sins so that you can show the fruits of the Spirit out on the streets every day. And so we can come together and celebrate what we've done through the week as a church body. Maybe you've done that. Or, and maybe, uh, you know, your life's gotten tough. Your life's gotten hard. Suffering is different for each individual. You know, for, for some, you know, going to work for 40 years and then getting a pink slip that morning, that's major suffering, suffering that I can't comprehend. For some of us, it's different. For some of us, we've lost someone close. For some of us, it's a struggle every day with our flesh and with our spirit. Are we going to continue doing that sin that, that seems like we can't beat, that sin that we can't defeat? Are you going to find God? If you need anything, if you need the church, please come as we stand and as we have seen.